a place where the willow don't bend. There's not much more to be said. It's the top of the end.
realized right away. It takes uh, oh, 50, 60 years before people realize what an achievement it is. Like, um, take for instance tobacco and uh, the discovery of tobacco. It was discovered by Sir Walter Raleigh, you know, and he sent it over to England from the colonies. And uh, it seems to me the uses of tobacco aren't obvious right off the bat, you know. And I imagine a phone conversation between Sir Walter Raleigh and the head of the West Indies Company in, in England uh, explaining about the shipment of tobacco that he had just sent over. I, I think it would go something like this. Yeah, who, who is it, Mary? Sir Walter Raleigh from the colony. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, put him on, will you? Uh, Harry? Yeah, you want to pick up the extension? It's, uh, it's Nutty Wall again. <laughs> How's, how's everything going? I think things are fine here, Walt. Did, did we get the what? The, uh, the boatload of turkeys. Yeah, they, they arrived fine, Walt. Uh-huh. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're still here, Walt. Uh, they're, they're wandering all over London, as a matter of fact. Uh, see, that's, uh, that's an American holiday, Walt. Uh-huh. But what is it this time, Walt? You, you got another winner for us, uh, do you? <laughs> tobacco. <laughs> What's tobacco, Walt? It, it's a kind of leaf. And you bought 80 tons of it. <laughs> uh, let me get this straight now, Walt. You, you bought 80 tons of leaves? This may come as kind of a surprise to you, Walt, but uh, uh, come fall in England here, we're kind of up to our... Uh... It, it isn't that kind of leaf. Uh, but what is it, a, a special food of some kind, is it, Walt? Not exactly. It has a lot of different uses. Uh, like, what are some of the uses, Walt? Are, are you saying snuff, Walt? What's, what's snuff? You, you take a pinch of tobacco. <laughs> and you shove it up your nose. <laughs> and it makes you sneeze, huh? I, uh, I imagine it would, Walt, yeah. <laughs> See, uh, uh, Goldenrod seems to do it pretty well over here. <laughs> it, it has some other uses, though. You, you can chew it <laughs> or put it in a pipe. Or, or you can shred it up and put it on a piece of paper and roll it up. <laughs> don't, don't tell me, Walt. Don't, don't tell me. <laughs> you, you can chew it <laughs> or put it in a pipe 
or, or you can shred it up and put it on a piece of paper and roll it up. <laughs> don't, don't tell me, Walt. Don't, don't tell me. <laughs> your fireplace and have the same thing going for you, you know? <laughs> Inhale the smoke. Uh, <laughs> you know, Walt, it seems offhand like you can stand in front of your fireplace and have the same thing going for you, you know? <laughs> See, Walt, uh, we've been a little worried about you, you know? <laughs> Ever since you put your, your, your cape down over that mud, you know? <laughs> See, Walt, I, I think you're gonna have kind of a tough time uh, selling people on sticking burning leaves in their mouth. It's going very big over there, is it? What's the matter, Walt? You spilt your what? Your coffee. What's, what's coffee, Walt? Se acaba ya, el mambo se acaba. 
Black Plastic on uniradio.fm
Any man who is accustomed to giving lectures, especially to college students, develops the habit of speaking on any subject for exactly 50 minutes. By lucky coincidence, the two sides of a long playing disc run for just that length of time. So I am going to have the opportunity and privilege of talking to you for some 50 minutes on a subject which I hope will interest you as much as it does me. A very broad subject that I might call the care and feeding of the mind. I choose this subject because as a student of contemporary history, I think I see the signs of a revolution taking place in our attitude toward the mind, toward intelligence, brains, intellect. Some people will tell you that this revolution is easily described. We are headed, they say, toward complete anti-intellectualism. They will tell you that the term egghead was invented to express this hostility. And they will prove to you that within the last 10 years, it has become rather dangerous in the United States to express one's opinion. I do not dispute the facts, but my reading of the situation is exactly opposite. I believe that far from being anti-intellectual, the hostility complained of comes from the country's recent discovery that intellect matters, that ideas exist in our power. The suspicion aimed at the egghead is a crude response to the reality of intellectual differences. In short, the many conflicts of opinion that we deplore amount to a primitive battle of ideas which is the basis of the intellectual life. I find evidence for my view in quarters remote from politics. Consider the increasing agitation for the reform of our school system. Instead of boasting, as we've done for half a century, about the wonders of universal public education, our people are beginning to complain of its intellectual shortcomings. Anyone who addresses an audience of parents can be sure of an approving murmur if he says that the modern child is amiable but illiterate. The attacks on our schools, on our teachers, on our educational goals are now numbered by the dozen. And as you perhaps know, several of our large foundations have been spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get at the root of the trouble. The common theme of all these efforts can be described in the words used by one critic as the title of her book, So Little for the Mind. I refer to the debate on education merely to support the view that this country is just now uncommonly disturbed about the minds of its citizens, young and old. It is my impression that in school and society, in the home and in the culture at large, the question of mind has come up. 
having democratically given to the people the means of literacy and material comfort, our feeling is now a mixture of pride and disquiet. We go on spreading culture as a little peanut butter through our free libraries and museums, our paper-bound books, and our wonderful reproductions of painting and music. But we feel qualms about the result. Despite the unbelievable distribution of good things for the mind, we turn against our school system out of fear that it is producing barbarians, and we turn against our men of ideas out of fear that intelligence will betray us. This contradiction is probably a sign that we have reached one of those points of equilibrium in life where a slight push one way or the other will determine the direction that the main current will take. That is why I want to talk to you about the mind. I want to give a little push and see whether through you I can't help determine the direction of the main current from here on. But don't be afraid. I have no desire to go on speaking about education or politics either. I only want to put to you a few suggestions about the mind itself. The mind is a private place. Your mind, when you're alone on watch there, looking inward or outward, our minds when we come together for workaday or sociable reasons, or even when we clash more or less pleasantly in conversation. What is it that we bring to these occasions? What goes on when we are silently turning things over in our mind? What kind of gift is it when we give someone else a piece of our mind? The mind in this sense is what we seldom talk about. We believe that it takes care of itself. There's nothing to say, nothing to do about it. Everyone has the mind that God gave him for good or ill, just the way one has red hair or knock knees. But my last illustration stops me. Although we tolerate red hair, we do not take knock knees lying down. We have an ideal of physical perfection, and we are quick to correct nature when she goes wrong. The modern civilized world is a vast factory, in fact, for straightening legs and teeth, curing stammers, stopping palsy, strengthening the blood and the lungs and the eyes, and generally making the human animal conform to the best models. Our care of the body begins with the baby's orange juice, if not before, and it ends in the worship of the movie hero and the pinup girl. This is quite right. Health comes first and good looks are not to be despised. But many go much farther and actually worship the body, reserving all their highest admiration for physical prowess. Anybody who lives near a seat of learning, which means about 98% of the population, is familiar with what is, after all, a curious aspect of the American winter. I mean the sight of the athlete limbering up on the wooden track. There he stands in his gray Union suit, like a man just escaped from a midnight fire. From a distance, he seems to be leaping about in pain, or perhaps keeping warm. He spreads out his arms and touches the ground on each side of him. Then in a frenzy of joy, he starts to pump with his legs like a demented cyclist. As you come near, however, you discover that he must be engaged in some intellectual effort because there is a slight frown on his face. If you didn't know any better, you would suppose that he was rehearsing the ways by which man has risen from the ape. He throws imaginary javelins 
Then he runs a few desperate steps and stops. At this point, the coach comes up and criticizes his form, makes him blush for not keeping his elbows in. From their seriousness together, it is clear that a great deal depends upon the athlete, and therefore upon these antics in the open air. No one considers it strange or ludicrous that he should do this. That is a recognized form of self-discipline. And this slave of duty is envied in a manly spirit for the way that he spends his time. For it's generally agreed that by his apparently meaningless gestures, he is doing himself a great good. He is keeping fit. Fit for what is not a proper question. Fit to be a man, fit for his own enjoyment, fit to be hugged by the girls, fit. But another question breaks in. Are the others in the school, the less than perfect men who sit indoors, are they developing their strength of mind in a comparable degree with a comparable seriousness? Is there a slight frown on their faces or only a blank, bored look? Certainly, the outside world wants them to be what it calls competent, useful members of society. And it is said that to achieve this result, they have to know algebra and at least four plays of Shakespeare. But that isn't quite the same thing as what our friend outside was doing. One difference is that the world doesn't ever quite understand why algebra and Shakespeare. It merely bows to blind necessity. Nor does the world cheer the natural athletes of the mind. It neglects or fears them. It would jeer at any eccentric who should flex his mental muscles in public. The world recognizes ability in business or science or vote-getting. It thinks that ideas in politics and religion are worthy and important or dangerous and damnable. Flat Black Plastic. Mutiny Radio, FM. It's summertime, and we're ready to groove in the mission for the sixth annual Noise Pop Block Party. It's free. Saturday, August 18th, from noon to six, with bands. Empress of Maria's the She's come to Mutiny Radio for special programming all afternoon, including live comics, karaoke on the radio for donations. And interviews with main stage bands. Bring your family and friends and neighbors and dogs. And August 18th, to benefit mission, language, and vocational school and celebrate the peak of sunshine. For more info, check the noise. Check out the Noise Pop Block Party website at 20streetblockparty.com.
in from playing, as tired as I can be. I stretch my legs and fold my hands. I close my eyes so I can't see. It feels so good to be quite still. I like to rest this way. I think about the happy times that I have had today. Children are resting, children are resting, children are resting now. Children are resting, children are resting, children are resting
Okay, uh, just go... Stretch and yawn. 
I'll close my eyes and just pretend the daylight time has gone. I'll breathe so softly, be so still, a little mouse might creep across the floor because he thought that I was fast asleep. a song about the Lord Jesus I think you know. Listen.
Slap Black Plastic Mutiny Radio FM. letters in alphabetical order. They are the key directly to the right of the semicolon, which has a sense sign on it. The fraction key, which is to the right of the letter P, and the hyphen key, which is on the top row next to the number zero. Capital letters are typed by pressing down either the left or the right hand shift key, depending on which hand strikes the letter. For example, 
If you want to strike a capital A, first press down the shift key on the right side with the small finger of your right hand. Then strike the A key with your left hand as before. If you want to strike the capital letter L, first press down the shift key on your left side with the small finger of your left hand. Then strike the L key with your right hand as before. If you wish to type only capital letters, press down the shift lock key. This is explained more fully under part one in your manual. For practice, type the capital letters alphabetically, pressing down the required shift key for each letter and then releasing it once the letter has been typed. using the keys on the row directly below the starting keys. S, X, S, space, S, X, S, space. S, X, S, space, S, X, S. Space, strike, F, B, F, space, F, F space F B F space F B
Uh, I worked as an accountant for a number of years in Chicago. Uh, and I had a kind of a strange uh, theory of accountancy. Uh, I had always felt, uh, you know, if you got within two or three bucks of it, <laughs> but this never really caught on. <laughs> and as a consequence, I held a number of different accounting jobs, you see. And it seemed like whenever I would go with a company, uh, they would always be having a retirement party. And I found out one thing. They are all alike. Uh, different people will retire, different people make the speeches. But they all say the same tired old thing. I went to one in Chicago for a guy named Chuck Bedlow. He was an accountant and he was retiring after 50 years. And first of all, Mr. Clayton got up. He was the president, he gave a little address. Then Mr. Tipton, the vice president, gave a little address. And finally, Bruce Higgins, the head of the accounting department, got up and gave a little address. And he was Mr. Trite. He used every cliche that had ever been used at a retirement party. Uh, and he said things like this. Well, uh, uh, golly, I guess today's the day, isn't it? <laughs> It's, uh, it's really going to seem funny, though, uh, golly, walking in here Monday morning and, and not seeing, uh, not seeing uh, uh, Charlie's uh, smiling, happy face there at the desk. I, uh, I got to calling him smiling, easygoing Charlie. <laughs> and I guess most of us had some sort of nickname or other. We used to call him from time to time. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget a... Well, that, that too, yeah. Uh, I'll never forget a kind of amusing thing happened. Uh, I just gotten out of college and... Uh, now, what's, what's the phrase I'm looking for here? I, I, well, a, a little wet behind the ears, I guess might be the way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> And I was made department head here. <laughs> and uh, many's the night that Charlie and I used to uh, sort of uh, burn the midnight oil, so to speak. So let's really hear it now for a wonderful old guy. Uh, uh, Charlie uh, Bredlow. Bedlow, Bedlow. Charlie? Well, uh, uh, thank, uh, thank you very much, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, sitting here uh, listening to uh, Mr. Clayton and uh, Miss, Mr. Tipton and, of course, Bruce here. And through all of their speeches, one thought kept sort of uh, recurring in my mind. I, uh... I think I'm going to throw up.
Thanks for listening to Flat Black Blast on Muni Radio.fm. Keep coming back. Where all the sound you hear is from plastic that's flat and black. And full of grooves. <laughs> <laughs> 